Hello and welcome to the 49th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them about their starting industry, what the influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developers themselves, and in the second half we discuss the game we're here to promote, which in this case is Hand of Fate by Defiant Development. Morgan, who are you and what do you do? I am the creative director at uh, Defiant Development, and I'm one of the uh, founders. The company was started nearly five years ago now by myself and Dan Treble, um, uh, along with Sean Eustace. So Dan was the tech director, and Sean was the art director, and I was the lead designer at Pandemic Studios Australia before, uh, before we kicked off Defiant. Right. So... Sound like kick off to find something, but no, kicked off to find. <laughs> it's kicked off to find. Yeah, it's funny. You know, we we set up uh, to find development, and we get uh, we get mistaken for deviant development quite oh, a lot. Yeah, um, and uh, and apparently, you know, childhood. I, I now have two children, and they talk about defiant developmental disorders. So every time I look up defiant development, I find about uh, out about a bunch of uh, naughty toddlers. Yes. It's part of growing up, isn't it? Uh, oh, exactly. They're not supposed to be doing that until they're 13. But that's, <laughs> that's a different type of defiance. I always tell that with, with parents. Like, uh, yeah, by the way, you know, 10 years from now, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to start painting those walls. Just give them a pot of black paint, a brush, and go to knock yourself out. <laughs> See you in 10 years and you can report <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> For being such a jack. Um, it's, it's unfair to teenagers, but they do get like that. Anyway, uh, it's, uh, it's just if, a... if I had to go back and deal with my teenage self now, I would be uh, I would be slap. deeply infuriated. I'll give him a slap. I would genuinely give him a slap. I wouldn't say yeah. anything to him. I'd just give him a slap. But stop <laughs> it. <laughs> Never that. Uh, uh, just the slap around the chops. It's the only way to wake him up because it's oh dear. Anyway. So you've already given a little hint about your history there, but let's just go back to the very beginning, not not the universe, but your, your career. Um, where did you make start? What did, what did you think you you really started doing, making video games? When, when was it? So you know, as as a pro, I started at Irrational Games, um, and Freedom Force was the first game that I shipped. Uh, prior to that. You know, I actually got that job because the art director, who's a, a fantastic artist, um, was one of my high school buddies, and I used to run the D&D game for them. So when they were looking for somebody to do writing and design, he uh, he gave me a call, and I managed to jump through the hoops and, and get through the interview. But we made a bunch of games at high school that never really went anywhere. No. Uh, we, we both worked together. Sorry. We both worked together for a company um, that uh, that was kind of – they were sort of a game development company. They'd made a lot of money in the CD duplication business and decided that they wanted to make a game, um, but they didn't really know what they were doing. That game never came out, and there was nobody on that team had ever made a game before, so it was all a bit hap-handed. But, uh, but Irrationals where it really kicked off for real, and, and then I went on to Relic and uh, – Worked on the Homeworld series over at Relic, and uh, that's that's a 
there's a new Homeworld coming out, isn't there? By I can't remember the developer now. So it's not Gearbox, Reddick. yeah, that's that's right. Gearbox bought the license. That's right, and they're yeah. and they're working with a team uh, called Blackbird. That's and it. Yeah. Blackbird is the heart of the old uh, Homeworld team. So oh, okay. um, Rob. Rob Cunningham set up that that company, and he was the art director on Homeworld. And obviously, Homeworld's visual signature is one of its most substantial parts. Yeah, um, I remember and, those trails and, of plumes of. Oh, exactly! That was it's amazing. It's, well done. And <laughs> and Rob, well, Rob is a, Rob is a genius, um, yeah. and uh, working with him is an absolute pleasure. So I'm super excited to see what the new thing is from those yeah. those guys. It's one of those memorable moments in video games when it's first seeing your big mothership jumping into another system. And it was just like, exactly. oh, wow. And, and a dash of <laughs> strings playing in the background. Yeah. And, you know, just so much care and consideration for the little things. Okay. So, yeah, that's, that's quite a long history. Sort of, so did you say you – what sort of systems were you, did you start out on? Was it 16-bit systems, so, did you say? No, that was that was PC games. So, okay. so both uh, Freedom Force and uh, and Homeworld were, were PC games Yeah, back in, I guess, the so In your high 90s, school years, but, what were you doing? Was it like demos? And oh, stuff? that was – yeah, that, that was all like uh, 386, 486 demos. Okay. Um, right. You never got involved with the Amiga then or anything like that or – I mean, it was knocking around. Oh, I wish. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I had an Atari ST as a uh, as a youth, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I just looked wistfully at the much better selection of everything that was available on the Amiga. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, those demos on the Amiga was ridiculous. And uh, it's it's funny. I know a lot of those old uh, demo scene people now. In fact, uh, Glenn Fiedler, who's a very good mate of mine, uh, now works for Respawn Entertainment. Um, and he's uh, he's ex demo scene, and a lot of the um, Finnish and Swedish demo scene people I uh, I know very well. And at the time, again, they were they were one of those groups of people who just seemed like you know mysterious mysterious foreign magicians back uh, <laughs> back when I was starting. Yes, I mean it, it for a while there, and it wasn't that wasn't it was for a while, a good chunk of time. That both the ST and the Amiga were actually the lead platforms as regards to games and technology. Uh, oh, absolutely! The PC yeah, was I... just squalling and like, "What are you doing? What's this driver stuff?" And what? Uh, why have you only got it... four colours? Uh, <laughs> it's weird. If, if you were lucky, you could play a shitty golf game on the PC. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and maybe a flight sim. And but then it was when I got my first four eight six and got Doom was, was the moment it, yeah. when it turned around. It turned. It was like a big switch. It was that Wing Commander. I remember seeing Wing yes. Commander and like, what is that? I mean, it no. did eventually arrive on the Amiga, and it was fantastic on the Amiga. Of course, it was. Didn't need all it needed is four discs. It was only on four yeah. discs on the Amiga. There's four. Like, hang on, there's a whole pile of discs on this PC, and there's only something. <laughs> it's exactly the same game, but. There was obviously, it's, I don't know, something going I, I, on. I, I, I would guess that that was video compression. Um, yeah. But, uh, but I'm not sure. Um, but my guess would be it was video compression and the Amiga could decode the video faster or was more compressed to get it down. Yeah. But uh, I, I remember taking Wing Commander and a sound card around to my mate's place because uh, he'd, just, he'd just got them. 
you know, having to screw hardware into the computer. But then <laughs> that that 3D ship lands and, you know, the yeah. voice starts and the music kicks in and you're like, this is amazing. This is just... Uh, and it, I'm not going to say it still holds up. It really doesn't. But it's still an enthralling piece of software. It's just... It really and, is good fun to play. So. That's That's one of the things I try and think about is when when we make games is kind of what's that little bit of magic you know it's you can't recreate it by just having sound play for the first time i remember robocop on the uh, commodore 64 mm-hmm. you know had a voice a voice over the credits over the, the title screen that said robocop except of course you know it was commodore 64 so i said robocop yeah uh, and uh and that was that was amazing to me at the time and and it's hard to it's hard to get the technology win now where you show something, somebody something that, that's technologically never been done before. Yeah. Um, but you can still do it with gameplay and you can still do it with presentation. And I, I think you have, to, you have to spend some time thinking about what's magic about your game, what's the thing that you yeah. can do that, uh, that people go, oh, that. So would you say that's your influence then? Because you know, nicely segued into that, that third question. Well... <laughs> so, um, it, it's it certainly is. something that drives you, isn't it? Sounds like yeah, it, it, it very much is. And you know, I, I use the term magic not lightly. Um, I, yeah. I was a for my sins. I was a teenage magician um, and uh, and a member of the magic circle and a stage performer back in the day. Um, and I think it's that combination. You know, I was a geek. There's, there's no two ways about yeah, it. Yeah, I think um, for I, years I tried to hide this, and then I realised it's, it's really exhausting to do it. You know, oh, to, exactly it's right. tiring, and then you realise that well, if people got a problem, you being a geek, they're the ones with the problem, not yourself. It takes a so while I, to get used to that, but it's true. Look, and I grew up in Gen X, where you're not allowed to like anything except, ironically, yeah, and that's uh, right. and I think I think the comfort of my old age is exactly that I feel really comfortable. You know, there are things I love that are geekish things. You know, I love stage magic. I love illusion. I love role-playing games. I love that D&D presentation. Yeah. I love, the, uh, I love the, the fighting fantasy novels that I grew up with that could take you to another world. Um, I love, you know, I, I love that sense of mystery and I love that, uh, I love that you know, kind of occult-tinged, kind of magical edge and and a lot of that is stuff that we've we've tried to touch on in hand of fate and show some of that love um uh, but i am i am always very sensitive to that magic moment and and to giving it a nice build up and giving space in the game for those moments to breathe too like you can't just go amazing thing after amazing thing or it all becomes a bit bland you have to you have to find the ways to to give those things the rhythm and presentation there is little flares and nuances throughout the game which we'll talk about in the second half, but uh, there's something I want to talk to you about later on, but there's one aspect that had me like, huh, that was interesting. Why is that, why, why did you do that? But we'll, again, mm. I don't want to go into too much detail on that. But no, uh, you're right. It's, it's definitely something that people, it's not tangible, but people do are attracted to it. Uh, I whilst, think, and, and user yeah. experience is very much, 
built out of the intangibles. And, and of course, they're always constructed from tangible choices. You know, how long you, you spend on, you know, one screen, how, far, how responsive the buttons are and so on and so forth. But uh, we, we talk about these things in detail so rarely because to the end user, they're indescribable and they're indefinable. You know, somebody doesn't know that the reason that, that one game feels more resp- responsive than another is because you get an animation, uh, you get some flow-on effect on the character moving quickly to let you know the commands happened, even though the animation doesn't cha- transition out of the one that it was in until a couple of frames later. Because yeah. the character's head snaps around, it feels responsive immediately. Right. Um, whereas in another game, exactly the same thing happens, but you don't get the Im- uh, immediate visual feedback. Yeah. You know, Those are the sorts of things that people can't describe to you beyond this one feels snappy. Um, and and you see a lot of discussion of games in terms of technical specs and, you know, is it 1080p? And it's really easy to talk about technology and very hard to talk about user experience. And yeah. uh, But that's what we have to do. You know, that's, that's uh, on the background, it's actually, that's where we put our effort. Um, and it it embodies a whole bunch of technological challenges. Mm. But, uh, but it comes down to very small user experience decisions. I think one of the, Biggest examples I can think of, a rather blunt one, you may disagree with it, but one of the reasons I've always sort of put World of Warcraft above most other MMOs is that, yes, visually it's not as as uh, detailed as some others. However, they sacrifice that by actually flipping it over by saying, well, you can stand on top of a mountain in WoW and look across to another one in the far distance and then run to that mountain with that single loading screen. Yeah. And that's important because that means you know where you are. You always look, look, know where you are. <laughs> it's so it's so huge. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me too that you, you talk about loading screens because these are a common one for developers yeah. to ignore as part of the experience. They're just kind of assumed and it makes such a massive difference. And, you know, does, this yeah. is one of the places where, where mobile – learned really quickly you yeah. know if you put a one second gap in front of people then uh then that's a second that they have to switch your game off and never come back yeah um yeah so yeah, it really d- does result in people uh, in people approaching it differently i think and um and then you say it's that it's that ability to seamlessly look across the entire environment and move across it is a different form of experience even if you had, yeah. even if you had the mountain and a loading screen along the way, yeah, that would be a different experience because it breaks up the way that our brain understands space. Indeed, and I just, you know, the other way of doing it, which is very very common, is they they have these isolated instances, these zones, if you will, yeah. which are essentially just like levels or in a regular game, they just compartmentalise it into boxes. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just, just my, don't do that. The, no, when I'm exactly. playing an MMO, yeah. I just I know I know in a, I know it's artificial. I know I'm in a box. Why do you think people love Skyrim so much? Because yes. you could do what I just said. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So, <laughs> you know. So, anyway, next question: Who do you most admire in the industry? Could be a company, so, could be a person, could be a dog. Uh, um, <laughs> I am very fortunate to have met uh, 
and and worked with uh, quite a number of of my idols. And wow. as I say, you know, I uh, Rob Cunningham at from Relic, but now at uh, now at Blackbird, um, I'm a huge fan of, and I'm a huge fan of because he has an uncompromising artistic vision and he considers that the entire game is art. So it was never a case of him being like, well, I'm in charge of the art. You know, you guys are in charge of the design. It it was a case of, well, the the rhythm here isn't right and it doesn't look good and you need to bring in the the cinematic bars and you need to transition seamlessly from here to here because how the game looks at any point in time is important to the overall creative delivery of the, of the game well i so, would say looks and sounds sorry but i think yeah it's yep. the whole no no exactly oh, is, yeah. well paul ruskay at studio x did the sound for the relic games and, right. and rob worked closely with him um and again that that's a that's a triumph and you know all of these things happen as as the work of a collective group it's never never one individual who does all the work but i do think an individual can help to drive the uh, can help to drive the the overall vision and and Rob's also you know he's incredibly fast he would sketch stuff out um, the other side of the slate is uh, people like Ian Livingston who uh, set up Games Workshop um, I've met him a fair few you know, times he's a lovely man uh, he he is just lovely and. Uh, He's and again, very passionate he's, about games. And again, unapologetic nerd. Doesn't care. It's, no, yeah. exactly. And, and, and We and, should be like know, that. We really should be like that. You know, unapologetic. I, I agree. And he's, he, he does a lot of, a lot of good uh, in addition to the, the kind of games work he does. Yeah. He's been... I think it takes a lot to be relevant in multiple generations of, of game yeah. development because a lot changes. And... Uh, and he's kind of been relevant all the way along, which I think is super, super important. Um, and yeah, he's he's one of the idols I've met who I'm delighted to say, you know, stood up to the uh, to the idolatry, which yeah. is nice. Yeah, because uh, they do say don't meet your heroes, but uh, yeah, you, that that can, that can happen. Like, oh, yeah, maybe. Okay, well, you okay, you just keep doing what you're doing, just to stop talking. <laughs> And that's exactly right, and and I understand Very too. You know, yeah. In a lot of cases, uh, you might meet these people, and you know they're busy and they get approached a lot. I, I've oh, got yeah. to say, um, John Romero is another one who's who's super lovely in person and has always been incredibly generous yeah. with his time and his input. And you know, I I remember the first time I met John, and that really was one of those. No, you're not as a as a boy growing up in Australia and in country Australia too, which is pretty isolated from the rest of the world. Yeah, The rest of the world is something that, that occasionally sends through magazines and television programs. Reminds, but it really... it reminds you of its existence as well. Like, that's, yeah. that's exactly right. But, and, and my sense was that it didn't really, like it never really existed as a place you could be. No. Um, th- these were, these were illusionary places in, yeah. off in the distance. And, you know, when, when doom happened, that was a, that was an incredible watershed yeah. for me. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, now, now to spend time with these people is, uh, is pretty amazing. And they, the other good thing is that when I started in the industry, I had no respect for experience. I thought I, I thought I knew it all. Um, right. and as I've, you know, as I've aged, I've got more and more respect for experience. Yeah. I've, I've been in the industry for about 15 years now. And I think, uh, 
you know, I think 15 years is about the sweet spot. Um, when I'd been in for 10 years, I thought 10 years was about the sweet spot. So I've, I've kind of effectively thought I knew it all at every point along yeah. the way. I remember 15 years ago is a pivotal moment in video game history. Sort of built that up there. but No, you are absolutely I correct. I was there at E3 2000 for my earliest journalist gigs. I was there when they you know, released the PS2, finally. Yeah. <laughs> and when... The Dreamcast, although it had a fantastic showing at that E3, was dead. It was like, yeah. it's a really good, it's a really good machine. But I know, but Sega couldn't manage to piss up in a brewery. All right, well, <laughs> and, and and content is what matters. Um, yeah. And she ain't you know that. the PS2 won on content just explosively, yeah. Yeah. and and also you know this that's the time when Half Life, Homeworld. Um, just uh, there were an endless stream of of uh, System Shock Two. It was like, two PC years after really... the, you know the ninety eight legendary yes. golden year of PC gaming. Everyone, yeah. So oh god, that's when and you list all those the games that come out that year. Like, are you? Did anyone have any time? Did anyone eat? Yeah. <laughs> Not really. No, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was amazing. It was amazing. It was amazing. Uh, Baldur's Gate, and I think Baldur's Gate came out, but yeah, it's just yeah. stunning. So, okay. Um, the great answer. Uh, again, a lot of developers, you know, it's it's hard to answer that one. They don't want to annoy anyone. And I don't think anyone's got that much of a, a, a hit their ego, like, oh, you missed me out. Like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, games then. We've been talking about games, but we're dancing around them. But we're going to talk about Hand of Fate presently, but before we do, what are you playing right now? What am I playing right now? Well, I, right now. Am... I hope you're not playing threes right now. <laughs> <laughs> I have a six-week-old daughter, Excellent. which has put a little bit of a stunt in my game playing over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, I have Darkest Dungeon, which I've played like two minutes of and want to get back to. Right. Um, I've uh, just prior to my daughter being born and in some of those initial nights where she was sleeping and I was uh, I was noodling around in the background. Yeah. I've been playing um, GTA V because... Right. Uh, Is that the, all the, the next... last gen or the current? No, current gen, yeah. Okay. So, um, and which has been fantastic. Like It's a work I, I, they're, they're amazing. Oh, they are. I, Sorry. I, I, I admire what they can do because... It's not enough to have lots of resources. You know, I've, I've worked on big teams and organising lots of resources is hard, but GTA just does everything really well and they've, they've solved a lot with 5 that was problematic in 4, which was also a work liked, of genius. I loved 4. I know a lot of people yell at me about four. 4, but I, the ending was a bit ropey and there was a bit of inconsistency with the characters, but the actual world they created was convincing. I, look, I agree, and, and four is four. I think uh, hits with people because it's where they took a slight turn to realism over satire, which yeah. of course is the gap that Saints Row stepped into. Very much um, so, and then reveled but, in, and then sat in, and now it's doing little dance. That's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> and, and, but uh, but I like. Um, I think they had to make that decision. You know, uh, as they upgraded graphical fidelity, they needed to upgrade storytelling fidelity and uh, and world building fidelity, and they've they've done that. And i i think I think both of them are, are just great. And I'm also 
really keen for the order, um, which oh, uh, I don't yeah. have PS4 at home, but uh, but I'm stoked for that, and uh, I'll be. I'll be playing that at the office PS4 over the next week or so. I, I, I do have all the systems because of the you know one required to, and uh, <laughs> it's it's not me boasting; it's just a fact. Uh, no, it is absolutely. You know, yeah, and um, I just want to ask: I've been asked this other developers as well, and their their take on it. I don't want you to do the fanboy thing or get involved with that, but yeah. the comparison between the Xbox One and the PS4, I'm struggling between the two experiences being that different from one another. Um, so we don't uh, we don't code close to the metal. Um, we're not we're not uh, we work mostly in Unity, so we're not doing, uh, we're not doing a ton of system specific uh, tweaking. I think it's one of those things where almost everybody is doing cross platform now. Right, and if you do if you're doing cross platform, then for all intents and purposes, the systems are identical. Yeah. You can't do too much to take advantage of one over the other because that makes it just hard to port the, the work across. So they're also both much more like PCs than they were yes. last gen. You know, last gen it was really hard to compare, particularly yeah. the PS3. The PS3 was a unique piece of hardware. It was out on its own, wasn't it, doing its oh, weird stuff for absolutely. years. For, like, for years. Wrong stuff, wrong stuff. Like, what are you doing? Well, it worked on PS2, and you know there were so many PS2s out there that developers yeah. were like, "Well, I guess I got to work your way." And uh, PS3 didn't quite get that advantage. And I still don't think, I don't think anybody's made a game that really does everything with the PS3 that can be done. Um, yeah. You remember Shadow of Colossus as a late PS2 game where you just yeah. went, "Holy shit! How yeah. is that a PS2 game? That yeah. is amazing." I think um, the force in that game. Just- Wow, yeah, wow, and 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 the the scope and um, I don't think that game exists for PS3 just because the market uh, the market hasn't really been there. You know, it's it's moved to PS4 and Xbox One very quickly. So there's not whereas PS there there has never been a machine like PS2 since PS2, where you know they just got 80 million units out there. Everybody had one. And that it absolutely dominated its generation and had a, a ripple-on effect for years and years and years. And the, the games called the last, last knockings of its life were ridiculous. I mean, how they were ridiculous. Yeah, and and you could still make a living making games for it, even you know, even three or four years after the PS3 uh, had come out. Yeah. So yeah, um, it was it was really interesting and unique kind of time that one. But uh, but yeah, so the short answer is for us. They're kind of equivalent. Um, I prefer the online experience on Xbox One uh, a bit, but not as much as I did last gen. Um, I prefer the PS4 exclusives over the yeah. Xbox exclusives. And Plus is nice. That's, they do and, and, and Plus is nice. Like, uh, what are you giving that away for? What are you doing? Well, look, you know, just... as, as a developer, Plus kind of worries me because I, I yeah. certainly have seen people saying, and if it looks awesome, I'll wait until that turns yeah. up on Plus. Yeah. And I'm like, oh. Don't do that. I'd rather you bought it. But yeah, <laughs> but, buy it. It's only $2 yeah. or something. Yeah. No. But, yeah. you know, that, it is what it is. Um, that's The market's moving and uh, and you can't, you know, you can't fight City Hall on that. So yeah. um, I think in the end providing an awesome experience for people who own your consoles is a good thing. 
yeah. and uh, and Plus does that comprehensively. So, well, that's the first half over. Hooray! We now move on to the second half, where we ask very direct questions to you, Morgan, about Hand of Fate. This is the zeroth question, I call it. The Isaac Asimov reference there, if you know your <laughs> I yeah. certainly do know my laws of robotics. <laughs> yes. and, uh, and the zeroth law is not really talking about much because it kind of, it's a big catch well, That's exactly right. You, you, you had to jam it in to cover the uh, Daniel Oliver crossover between his multiple worlds and... Uh, all of that was look. All of that was non-terrible, but uh, <laughs> but it was a yeah. You could see as yeah. You could see he painted himself into a corner and had okay. to try and unpaint him. Right. Um, so, Hand yes. of Fate. Hand, Hand of Fate, Fate is a deck-building card game where you sit across the table from a mysterious dealer who's invited you to play the game of life and death, and the cards you choose will be dealt out as a dungeon floor that you play through. As you turn each card over. It's uh, it's an encounter, and some of those encounters are things like you know meeting the maiden in the woods, and that's a pure storytelling encounter, text on screen, talking about what you might want to do and and what uh, benefits she might grant you, and sometimes you come across you know an ambush where uh, where bandits sleep out of the woods and ambush you, and that will start a combat sequence, and when combat happens, all the cards you've earned, the enemy cards, fly into a three D world. The, uh, the swords and the shields and the armour that you've earned come in and fly onto your character and you've now got a full 3D character model and you play out an Arkham-style combat using all the skills and abilities you've earned through that run. Um, your goal is to defeat the 13 different court cards, uh, so the, the Jack of Dust, the Queen of Dust, the King of Dust, and so on through the four different suits uh, until you can take on the dealer himself in the final battle. And uh, and it's a really it's a really interesting hybrid. It doesn't have when I worked at EA, we, they uh, they always wanted us to have like that that two minute elevator pitch. And uh, Hand of Fate is not a game with a two minute elevator pitch. It's uh, it's a game that you have to spend a little time with to kind of understand how all the pieces go together. But it really comes together towards something unique. For me, uh, when I first encountered this, I was walking by your booth. And I did a double take, like, hang on, what's this? This is really good, because it's got card games, which I really like. Um, one of my favourite card games right now is a Bloxen, which is a German card game. You can look it up. It's called Linko in English-speaking worlds. Mm. Like, oh, look, card game. And then, then all of a sudden it's got Punching in Face, which is, you know, God of War for me. <laughs> uh, I know you made reference to uh, Arkham, but I'm, oddly enough, I've only played in much length the first Batman game the rest 
not passed me by, but I just like got distracted by something else shiny. Um, yeah, no pile of shame. Never mind. Um, and the the for yeah, it's for me. It's God of War. Like and the the, the, the I really felt when I played the game, and it was a year ago, so it was it's way less advanced then than it is now. It's much much more slick than it was back in those days. Because uh, I remember noting how there's lots of sparkling effects you couldn't actually see your character properly, and that's now all fixed. Hurrah! Uh, but I thought that that extraordinary mix between the two was really well done. But it could have gone horribly, couldn't it? It uh, it really could have. Uh, among other things, you know, uh, doing action combat, particularly as an indie game developer, is hard. You know, uh, the games we talk about uh, in reference, the, the God of Wars and the Arkham Asylums, you know, these these are teams of hundreds um, mm. who, who spend years and have, have you know, dedicated uh, dedicated animators and programmers and, uh, and an entire crew whose who's job it is to make that, uh, that combat feel the way it feels. Um, so, you know, at the start, it, well, it took us a while to get it feeling good and I, I think a, a year ago at PAX it was it was pretty clunky and it's come an enormous way since then. Um, we're very, still not... Yeah, it was very brave of you to show off at the show floor because I was thinking, you know, it's just this weird uh, difference between these two type styles. It's quite... And, and I, think, I think it's one of those things where we always trust our ability to execute. You right. know, we don't necessarily trust that uh because we're an iterative studio we don't um we don't build kind of scripted experiences as as a rule we uh we sit down and we know how to iterate on a game until it's good we know how to take the time we know what finished means yeah and that gives us a confidence and it's always really hard like you look at i, I look at a lot of other early access titles and i'm like well there's something there if they do everything that's needed to wrap this up it'll be awesome i don't know if they can yeah. And uh, and I hope that now we've shown now that we've gone 1.0 and come out of early access, I think I think we've shown people that we can be trusted to to do that. But it's not an easy thing by any stretch of the imagination. But you finished it. I mean, I say finishing in inverted commas, but you didn't. You did deliver and finish. Absolutely. You know, we for for me, and you know, this just comes down to. Um, I think a lot of developers look at early access wrong. You know, oh, yes. I, I think yes. if, if you decide to go to early access because you want to make money, then you should be thrown out immediately. Yeah. The reason to go to early access is to make your game good. It's not a crowdfunding model. People no, are thinking exactly that right. way and it's wrong. It, it is wrong because you need to go. And, and we knew we had cash in the bank to finish our game. You, you know, did. We you did had a Kickstarter. Kickstarter. You did. We you did. We did a Kickstarter. We we raised fifty grand, which was not that's not the whole budget of the game by any stretch of the imagination. No. But when we when we started, we knew we had cash in the bank to finish it. So we were going to finish the game by hook or by crook. We ended up taking a little longer thanks to early access, and early access did put some extra money in the kitty, which let us take that time. But we went to early access to make the game good because we knew that we couldn't. You know, we couldn't afford to hire a test department of thousands no. of people, you no. know, but uh, but if people got on board, and it's always the case, like, the process of making the game good is not an easy process. It's a process where people swear at you and call you an idiot on uh, on forums for, for decisions <laughs> you've made, um, or for things you've prioritised, or for things that you're, you're 
done next, you know. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is that every single person who takes the time to make a comment is worth their weight in gold. And you have to dig in and find out why they're frustrated and make sure that the game will get them past that. And if we tried to release this game without early access, the game would have been balanced entirely differently. The game would have played entirely differently. It would have been a, it would have been a much rougher launch experience for us. There would have been, yeah. oh, we, we found hundreds of different weird controllers that weren't supported. Um, All right. I've always used my 360 and, controller. Uh, and and that's, <laughs> that's, that's one of the straightforward ones, but there's yeah. all of these weird Logitech devices and, oh, you know, right, and, yeah. and it's great because people just post in the forum and say, my controller doesn't work. And we say, cool, can you run this program that will identify your controller mappings and then we'll add it in. And we've gone through and added in all of this different controller support. Yeah, because people plug for, their PS4 controllers in. Exactly, exactly. For all sorts of machines that don't yeah. otherwise work. If you plug a PS4 controller in, we detect that and we show PS4 buttons instead of yeah. Xbox buttons. It's very nice and, you know, so. <laughs> and, and And people are... Uh, People are impressed by that because most other titles don't do that. And no, they just default to Xbox 360, which is it's fine for me because that's what I have plugged into my machine. But I can imagine that would be quite frustrating when you're using a, a PS3 controller, say. Oh. Exactly. Um, mm. So, you know, it's been, uh, as I say, it's really, it's really, really simple. As a developer, if you go to early access, you should be going to make your game good. And if you are, the community can really help you make the game better than it would be otherwise. And, and they have for us, and, and we owe them a great debt of thanks for that. And we've tried to give, you know, we, we announced just before release that we were giving the first DLC uh, free to all of our early access backers, um, just as a way to say thank you for, for being part of the process when it wasn't perfect. Yeah, you were seeing it. And it's, I, I love seeing it evolve over time. It's fascinating. Um, That's and a lot of people, like, you know, we're talking about the Sausage Factory, a lot of yeah. people are keen to do that, and that is exactly why they uh, why they get into early access. That's like, what the yeah. premise of early access has always been. It's never been a crowdfunding model, and it bothers exactly me that a lot right. of developers think it is. Stop no, that. I agree. It's, it's, I agree. Yeah, it's, I think if there's, if there's any chance that you won't finish the game yeah. based on the early access uh, response, then you shouldn't be going on early access yeah you shouldn't be out there i've got a question about deck building games because hand of fate is heavily influenced heavily influenced by deck building in fact it is a deck building game that's right it's a living card game not a ccg it's an lcg which fantasy flight i love those but i'm not keen on what fantasy flight do with those because you end up spending quite a lot of money even they're not (laughs) rares you end up making this extraordinary game and you know, they're great, but I just don't want to get involved because, you know, Netrunner's a fantastic game, but it's also going to cost me a mortgage. I'm like, no. Yeah. So, <laughs> what I'm asking is, what deck-building games did... Would they, any of them influence the creation of Hand of Fate in any way? Did you play some? Did you Look, draw from... absolutely. I, I, so my background, you know, I was, I was playing uh, Magic... The Gathering back when it was limited edition, um, I had I had a bloody pair of moxes that I traded away um, when I got out of Magic, which was yeah. a couple of years in for, for almost nothing. Um, I uh, you know which I still regret, but anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, but 
I loved CCGs back in the day. And then as time passed, you know, CCGs require a pretty large investment of time and they require you to have friends who have also made the same investment of time. Yes. So um, it only really works when you've got buddies who are playing at the same level and it, it caps out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I started playing, I became more casual and in, in becoming more casual kind of dropped out of that scene. But I filled that gap with uh, with Euro board games, uh, which we played a ton of and we had a really great crew of people and we would play a varied kind of slew of games on a regular basis. Okay. And then, uh, you know, we used to play a lot at the office as well. And then when we set up Defiant, the, Defiant's got a great board gaming culture on top of that. So all of those were, were kind of influences. And then... Okay. Dominion is Dominion and Ascension are two uh, yes, I'm are the glad two you most immediate. Uh, yes. You know, I play Ascension anyway. References. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, Dominion and Ascension. I prefer Ascension over Dominion. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. I just do. Uh, uh, I think. Do, do you play Ascension on the uh, the digital version or the physical yes, version? Both. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I love. I, I think they their digital implementation was the high watermark when it, it was, was released. Yeah. And, uh, and I really, I'm, I'm super impressed with, with what they've done. Um, and I like the fact that my wife and I can just sit on our iPads and, and play, you know, uh, with, a, with a couple of kids running around, it's less practical to sit down at the table and, and play a card game, but we can still, you know, play together very easily. So. Oh, yeah, the, the toddler's card game, those little crystals, those little silver crystals, no... No, that wouldn't that wouldn't end well. <laughs> well, it would. It would end up in an emergency room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so it, you you were so because there's a whole raft of them now. There's legendary, which is that Marvel one. And, yeah. And there's there's all sorts of and there's I'm just finding that a lot of the mechanics I find in Hand of Fate it just reminds me a lot in good ways of some of the best aspects of those games because it's definitely oh I'm just this is going to get and they're going to shove a bunch of other cards in here. And let's see what how this comes out. No, uh, you know, and uh, exactly. Look, you know, when we the previous game we made was like an action RPG for tablets called right. uh, called Heroes Call, and we did a lot of randomization in that behind the scenes. And one of the the, the way the cards first came came up was we were saying, oh, well, look, all of that randomization didn't really work. Players didn't understand what we were what we were doing, why it was clever or why it wasn't clever or what the case was. And, uh, you know, there's got to be a better way. And that's when we're like, well, we get rid of the randomization and just make a linear game. Or we can embrace the randomization. How would we show that to the player? And then somebody said maybe we could have cards that flip around. And as soon as it was cards, it was exactly as you say. We're like, oh, well... We can have cards that let you draw other cards. We can have draw cards that let you stack the deck. We can have cards that do this. And all of those card game mechanics from everything start to flip into place and you start getting synergies between cards. And that's uh, and then when you put the power in the player's hands to, uh, to, to deck build that, um, then you're really talking. Yeah. Creating that ultimate combo suddenly just appears and just creates this... Thing that was almost unstoppable, but not quite. 
Otherwise, the exactly. game would be very challenging. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about difficulty, actually, because I want to talk about difficulty curve that you seem to have developed for Hand of Fate. Uh, I found it to be quite shallow initially, maybe because I'm quite experienced in this, this realm yeah. of deck-building games. It's probably why. So I found it quite shallow, but it ramps up after the fourth boss fight, in my experience. That's, that's uh, exactly right. And, you know, we yeah. don't have an explicit tutorial. No. Um, so those first three are really uh, uh, are really our introduction. Um, and we want players who are unfamiliar with all of the, the kind of game elements to get a chance to kind of get their head around it. Yeah. Because um, it is very the unusual. Flip- the whole setup uh, is peculiar. Exactly. In a so, good way. And, but... <laughs> and then it picks up after the fourth, and I, I would say from the fourth to the sixth, you can either be good at the action RPG sequences, in which case you'll do fine, mm. or good at deck building, in which case you'll do fine. And then after that, you kind of need to be both. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and it's interesting. We've, we've noticed that that's the point where a lot of players hit a threshold, where they're like, ah, you know, it's impossible to go any further. I keep hitting this thing. And, you know, the answer to that is, well, take it out of your deck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Stop hitting so, it. You don't like it, right? That's exactly right. Then take it yeah. out. Can you do that? You know that bit where it says, you know, make the deck? Exactly. The optimization thing? Might not want to do that. <laughs> that's exactly right. And there is an auto deck in there. And, you know, it's good that we added that. That's made it easier for players to, to get their head around stuff. Yeah. But by the same token... I'm, uh, you know, I was I was very much wanted to make sure that we weren't, you know, telling players to bypass the the deck building altogether. No, Be- because that's one of the best bits of our game. So yeah, we want you to see it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and in the end, that's actually worked out well. So I mean, one of my favourite experiences I find not with Hand of Fate as well, but with with uh, when I played World of Warcraft TCG when it used to exist. Now it's Hearthstone. Um, is uh, is just making characters that uh, did incredible things because <laughs> building those decks up was part of the game experience. It, it absolutely is, and yeah. and that's why you know we we never set out to make a game for everybody. Um, we've ended up with a game that's much more accessible, I think, than we initially uh, than we initially yes. considered. That's true. But we we didn't. It was never the the goal to make a game for everybody. It was we actually wanted to make a game for the smallest niche we could find, um, right. which which is the crossover between uh, people who love deck building games, people who love video action games. You know, people like us, and <laughs> we knew that was small yeah. by its very nature, but we knew that we could give those people a really great experience. And it turns out that experience is a little broader. Um, and uh, and that's you know that's that's very gratifying for us. But uh, but I think it's too easy to water stuff down if you try and think of how to please everybody. Really, you know, you want to go, who can I please a lot? And that's that's the great advantage of today's game industry and indie industry. I think you can there there are enough ways to reach. Like, there's a huge audience out there, so you can reach the, the people who will love what you've done. And, and still, that's, that's the, yeah, and, and still turn out something that's successful. Exactly. You exactly. If you keep you know. the scope relatively small, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to try and... Um, if you're making a game that costs $100 million to make, like GTA, then you have to kind of 
appeal to everybody. Um, yeah, look, but, look at Destiny. Uh, well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, that, that, that is a great example. Um, yeah, yeah, pinnacle of like, yeah, we're going to appeal, appeal, appeal to everyone. Do you? Yes. Yeah. Great. <laughs> so, <laughs> which has actually been its, its downfall in many regards, sadly. But there it is. One final question. I know, sad, we're about to end. I don't like this happening. But this is nothing about gameplay or the mechanics. I think we've covered that in great detail now. What I want to talk about is some visual and audio aspects. Namely, the dealer. Beautifully animated to the point where he's got like trinkets. And I've noticed the thing I was, I was hinted at earlier is I noticed he's got this sort of like crystals around one of his arms. And when he lifts his arms up and down, those crystals aren't the static. They actually are a 3D polygonal thing that flop around. So there's a little detail, but it's just lovely that you've got things happening. Also, at the corner of your eye, like spiders appear and just weird stuff's happening. If you're not not paying attention, it's it, you know you miss it. Um, and, and what? Yeah, carry on. Sorry, sorry I, I was going to say. I think you know one of the one of the things about that is that. As I say, as a team, we iterate. So I, I always say that we don't like we don't design a game and then build it. We plant a seed and then grow it. And everybody in the team kind of gets to understand what the game is and what it's about and works yeah. out their own ways to, to make it better. So um, the trinkets actually came from our animator, Mike, being like um, who animated the dealer, uh, saying, look, I, I want... I want him to have more to do with his hands yeah. going back to the character artist and, and the character modeler and being like, can we get some, can we get some jewelry? Can we get some exposure? I want to be able to see the hands. It's, in, it's important. And he's done uh, just an amazing job making that character come alive. And likewise, the, the spider is, is just one of those little touches that comes from, uh, from Sean looking for ways to add the, the beauty. And because we've been through that early access process, of polishing everything up, we've had the time. You know, we've had the time to to cook it and uh, and yeah, give it give it what we wanted, which is which is really good. So the the real question is actually about the dealer himself. Mm. He's a deeply sarcastic individual who he doesn't think much of the player, from what I can see. You may disagree. That's, I don't that's, know that's, that, no, that's that's accurate. Uh, to the point where it becomes increasingly annoyed every time the player is successful the closer he gets to the end in inverted commas. Yeah. Uh, we all know why now, but there's a reason for that. <laughs> he you know, doesn't particularly want to face this foe if he's getting stronger and stronger. It's going to get, you know, it's, it's weird. And one, he's actually exposing himself. But anyway, it's a discussion for another time. But I want to ask, how did he come about? He's very interesting. So he came about because I... Love that tabletop D and D stuff, um, and that's my background. And I love being a deeply sarcastic individual on the other end of the table, <laughs> um, in character. And and you know, I've always said that it's not a DM's job to beat the players; it's a job to to entertain them. Um, I, I'm a DM myself. You know that too. And it's yeah, yeah, it's about entertaining. It's not adversarial. It can exactly. turn out that way when you got that one player. You know the one. <laughs> that well, one player like, and the no. thing is it's not adversarial but I love to give players good adversaries 
Yes. You know, I love the chance yeah. to play an interesting adversary. I, I like the chance to uh, to have a bit of sarcastic back and forth. And But most of all, I've worked in games writing quite a lot over my background. You know, I did... did uh, the writing for Freedom Force. I've done uh, I've done AI writing for for Splinter Cell, and I was just frustrated that every game character ever pretty much repeats themselves. You know, they you you come across them and they say, you know, oh, I need you to go down here to get this thing, and you talk on them again, and they're like, you know, I really need you to help me, and then you click on them again, and they're like, I need you to go down here and get this thing. Yeah, I really need you to help me, and. Uh, it's just, it's so immersion-breaking, yeah. but everybody considers it okay. And, you know, my, I said, look, we're a small team. We, we can only do small things, but I'm sh- I reckon we can do one character and make them live and breathe. Yeah, he, and, he says different things all uh, the time. Every <laughs> single possible thing that can happen in the game yeah. has dozens of lines of dialogue recorded for it. And most of those lines of dialogue, once played once, will never play again. Um, and that's because, you know, and, and he doesn't, nothing he says is, almost nothing he says is necessarily compulsory. So almost nothing he says needs to interrupt the previous thing, and it, and it almost never does. So as a result, you know, you don't get him, you don't have, he is not the feedback on the things you've done he fills the space around what you're doing. So if he's not saying anything and you've just played, you know, a maze of traps, then he's got things to say. Yeah. Um, if, he's, if he's talking about the previous one, then, then he'll keep rolling. And it was important to me that for the most part, he wasn't there to tell you the game rules. Um, and uh, But instead that, uh, that he was there to talk about the things that were interesting to him and to chat to you over the tabletop. You know, I spent a lot of time tabletop gaming, either, you know, board gaming or D&D and, uh, and uh, you know, we, that's the experience I wanted to make. I wanted to, to bring that across in as living a, fa- a form as possible. And it's really nice, actually, because once we'd gone gold, uh, I sat down and played all the way through um, Dragon Age Inquisition and... Uh, and I'm like, there's still, you know, Dragon Age Inquisition has some of the best writing in video games, but they still repeat themselves. Yeah. And that's still immersion breaking. And we still have one character who's more alive than any of their characters. Mm. And e- even with their budget, which is a hundred, literally a hundred times our budget yeah. um, and their team, which is a hundred times bigger than our team. And I, I'm really proud of that. You know, it's it's that doing one thing and doing it well. There was just one moment I was playing it just before we started recording the show to remind myself why, why I was enjoying it so much. There's one, I've just got some health. And he says, oh, yeah, you needed that, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's so passive-aggressive, like, oh, you needed that, didn't you? Stop it! Well, and, and it's nice too. I, we uh, we've really set up a strong relationship between the dealer's background and the player's background. You know, the, the player is effectively playing a, a warrior style character, and uh, and that's not where the dealer comes from at all. So he uh, he considers himself much smarter than you, yes, and is is deeply distressed at the fact that that uh, that you're 
outdoing him, even yeah. even so. It's just really, really annoys him. Oh, just, when it's coming towards the end, like he's really spitting nails at you. Like, what exactly. is it with you? Like, you know, just, what have and, you got to prove? It, what are you doing here? You know, it's just, and and a lot of that, you know, the performance obviously is uh, is first rate as well. Yes. And we're, we're very, very lucky to have uh, Anthony Scordy and uh, and the voice director we worked with on that, Mario Levin. Um, uh, we we could not have hoped for better, and it is it is performance that sells the game. Right, the game is out on Xbox One, PS4, right? Or is it PS4? Exactly. Right? Yep, PS4, yeah. Steam. So uh, it's PC. on PC, Mac, and Linux. Yeah. So it That's does right. work Steam. on um, Steam boxes, those of you who built them. Yes. Yep. And good old game and humble as well, if, if you prefer Excellent. those. Yeah. So it's everywhere. Um, everywhere. You, people really, really, really should play this game. It's very unusual in a good way. We need unusual. You know, I know people fear change and new things, oddly enough. Um, but uh, no, this is good. It's good, new, good, different. Do check it out. Uh, Morgan, it's been fantastic you having on the, on the show. We'd love to have you back on with your, with your new project, whatever it may be. Uh, and uh, wish you the best of luck in your future endeavours. So. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, and yeah, I'd love to, love to come by. As soon as we start uh, talking about a new thing, I'll, uh, I'll drop your line. Great. Thank you, sir. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review. And you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me, any feedback on the show or actually you're a developer you listen to the show and want your game featured on it please do email me at chris at spong.com bye